Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. If you're a fan of the show, write us a review and tell your friends about us. And if you donate at thebittersweetlife.net, you'll not only help keep the show going, you'll get a handwritten thank you note in the mail. And we will never forget you. Also, if you want to sponsor the show, contact us through thebittersweetlife.net. And if you're new, welcome. I'm Katie Sewell. This show begins in Rome, right after I quit my job as a senior producer for public radio and moved there. This was totally out of my character. My co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer, author of Midnight in the Piazza, and she's my childhood friend. And she also moved to Rome, but over a decade ago. She flew there with no real plan and managed to stay. Don't be afraid to start way back at the beginning. I promise you'll be entertained. And don't be afraid to start thinking about how you might want your life to be different. We're all on this journey together. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Tiffany Parks. Katie is away this week. And I'm here with Natalie Higgins. Hello, everybody. Natalie is an old friend of mine, and she's in Rome for a few days. Let's start if you don't mind, just a brief introduction. Tell us about yourself and what you do. So I am from Glasgow in Scotland, which is very important. Not from England, mm-hmm. not necessarily from the UK, but from Scotland, which is quite a significant part of who I am, my city and its general vibe. I studied languages at university, studied French and Italian. I thought you studied Spanish as well, or did I make that up? No, I started speaking Spanish when I was a kid, actually, because I've got very luckily, godparents from Tenerife in the Canary Islands. I started speaking Spanish before, actually I could count to 10 in Spanish before I could in English, because my mum taught me that. Wow. But French and Italian is what I studied. And after that, I became a journalist at the BBC, which is what I do now. What is your job at the BBC? So my job is Europe producer for BBC News, which means that I work covering news across the continent for all BBC outlets. So that's radio, TV, website, online, digital coverage that's shown in the UK and internationally. And I'm a producer, which means, well, I mean, it means a whole range of different things. I mean, what doesn't a producer do, really? You're organising things, you're helping decide which stories to cover, how to cover them, assisting correspondents, you know, making sure that you get on air on time. There's a huge number of different tasks involved in a producer's job, and I usually do most of them. (laughs) Okay, but you're not reading the news on air. Yeah, I used to back in the day in Glasgow, so when I started as a trainee at the BBC, I worked in Glasgow in my hometown. As part of that job, I did radio and TV, but primarily radio. And I used to write the hourly bulletins on Radio Scotland and read them as well, which was really nerve-wracking as a young journalist. I can um, imagine. Yeah, but it was fun. It was it was nice to, you know, you'd get your, your friends' parents occasionally, like your friends would text you and say, oh, my mum says she heard you in the radio <laughs> on the way home in the car. So it's nice, but I used to usually just try and forget that anybody was listening to me. Yeah, that's probably a good way to go, especially starting out. Well, I mean, you have to, I think that, I mean, it was the same when I used to, we'd say output, so put TV bulletins on air, you know, pressing the buttons basically to get, you know, not more than just pressing buttons, but to actually get a TV programme on the air, 
you'd be doing all this technical stuff and if you stop to think like how many people were actually watching the TV with the repercussions of you getting something wrong it's just kind of paralyzing really so it's best just to think I'm reading this bulletin to one person is what they always teach you or just forget that you know a million people might be watching a million jeez <laughs> yes no pressure um so I want to just back up one second and go back in time about 13 years I don't remember how it started. Did you email me? Were you in Rome already? I don't know, but here's what happened. <laughs> Natalie lived with me for about one year when you were a tiny little, how old were you? I just turned 20, I think. Yeah, no, I think I had my 20th birthday just after I moved in with you, actually, because I was born 86, so I shouldn't be revealing these personal details on the, <laughs> on the air. So Natalie was an intern, right? Who were you interning for at that time? So when I started here, I was an intern at AP, the Associated Press. That's right, I remember that. And that was my first internship here. And then I worked with an amazing man called John Hooper, who was at that time correspondent for The Guardian and The Economist. And I worked with him as an editorial assistant. And then... I worked at Reuters as an intern, which they, they'd never had one before, but I vividly remember pursuing the bureau chief at the time for a coffee or a chat to see if I could go and work there. And he said, oh, we don't have an intern here. And I said, yeah, but, you know, maybe you could have one. <laughs> and then, um, funnily enough, I met him again in Brussels, where I now work, a few months back, because he's now running a big um, news organisation in Brussels, and invited me to a cocktail party for female journalists. Wow, that is so cool. Your story comes full circle. Yeah, it's really nice when you meet people like that again. I said, he said, oh, I've had loads of interns since then. and so. No one like you, though. <laughs> well, I don't know. Um, I think that the point is, you know, that at that time I could have spent my year doing lots of really worthy, interesting stuff as lots of people that were at university with me did and as lots of students do now, enrolling in a university programme for the year or teaching English in a school as a teaching assistant. Those were the kind of more typical routes that people would take. But if you wanted to work during your year abroad, you could also do so. So that's why I was here. We didn't cover that, did we? Because no. in my languages degree, you spent one year overseas in the country of the language that you were learning to really deepen your language proficiency so you could choose to work but you had to organize it yourself and it was a bit more work so I guess on average most people didn't but I really wanted to get some experience in journalism during that year. You were a go-getter and I, if I remember right even John Hooper how you got that internship you just basically like cold called him and he was like I didn't I didn't think I needed an intern but I guess I do well I don't remember specifically what John said to me actually but it's certainly true that I remember vividly sitting in my second year student accommodation thinking because you know they have all these deadlines at university so it's like when's my essay on Dante due when's my translation due when's my deadline to set up my year abroad and I started quite early because I knew that I wanted to try and make the most of that year because the thing about journalism is there's lots of ways in which you can get some experience before the point at which you're seeking paid employment as a potentially as a graduate. So it's a very competitive industry. If you want to demonstrate your real interest in the job, you pretty much need to have shown in some way that you're interested in it, that you, you've pursued it already, that you've informed yourself about what's involved. 
So I knew I'd have to do that at some point and I thought I might as well do it when I was in Rome. So I emailed all kinds of people. I basically worked out who are the correspondents for various different outlets and got in touch with them, which was harder back in the day, actually. I realise this now. Yeah, I bet, especially without social media. Social media breaks down those walls so so much more. It really does. I mean, so I, I get a lot of emails now from students at my old university who are getting ready for their years abroad and they say, oh, I saw that you did this internship. Can you give me any advice? And I always reply, but I don't usually say, like, here's this person's phone number, go call them, because mm-hmm. I really think that that process of just working out, okay, who do I need to get in touch with? Who can help me with this? How do I persuade them that this is a great idea? How do I go about organising all this stuff? Like these skills of, you know, research, initiative, persuasiveness, perseverance. That's that's part of the training. That's what you need to have if you want to be a journalist. So I think that actually... But it's true, as you say, it's like working out the email formula. Like, what's the email formula for people who work at Reuters? Is it first name dot surname? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or how, what's the number for this office? The, all that stuff. You had Investigation. To, yeah, you had to try and find it. And now, sure, you could tweet somebody, I guess, or direct message them or LinkedIn them. Or it's certainly easier to find that kind of information than it used to be even 10, 13 years, well, 13 years ago. Uh, I'm just calling it 10 because that makes me feel younger. <laughs> <laughs> well, just think about me. I was already a lot older than you then. Um, no, I wanted to ask you, did you go into studying languages knowing you wanted to be a journalist or did it come about later? I already had a good idea that that was one of the potential career paths I wanted to pursue but I hadn't completely made my mind up yet. I always loved languages because, as I said, I I started speaking Spanish just from organically from having it around me when I was pretty young. And I think that having that language influence really early is so great. For, I mean, I know that you share this view, but it's really great for children because it just makes them so much more receptive to other languages that they might then learn. So then I really enjoyed it at school, I got to pick up two more languages in French and Italian and I just really loved it and I loved travelling. I loved being able to talk to people when I was travelling with my family, although obviously I was massively embarrassed about it and didn't want to make mistakes, which is the kind of barrier that you just have to plough through as a language learner, I think. Yeah, so I wanted to do it because I loved it, but I also could see its benefit. I knew that I wanted to be able to travel as part of my job. I knew that I wanted to be able to see the world and engage with different cultures in some way, whether that may have been in the diplomatic service or some other job that wasn't journalism. But as time went on, that was that came into focus as the thing that spoke to me the most. So by the time you were a third year in university, you were pretty sure? Because that's when you came to Rome, right? Third year? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I, well, I guess I wanted to get some real experience that year to see what the reality was like to then help me decide because it's quite easy to romanticise some jobs, you know, and certainly the job of a foreign correspondent, which is what I wanted to do at the time. I mean, so I'm not a correspondent, I'm a producer, but that kind of vision that you have of these like terribly romantic exploits, you know, and sitting in the... Gregory Peck. Like sitting in a hotel bar in Mm -hmm. Baghdad, you know, (laughs) sipping a cocktail back in the 50s or whatever. I don't know, some (laughs) kind of version of it. It's very easy to kind of think that it's something that it's not. And it's actually really useful to see what the reality of it is and whether you still want to do it, having seen that. So I got a little bit of an insight into that that year. And I also I spoke to some other people about, you know, 
potentially applying to the Foreign Office in Britain, which is, you know, Foreign Service, dip Diplomatic Service. But I just decided that, yeah, journalism was something that spoke to me on quite a deep level. I mean, I really believe in the value of public service journalism and working for the people, which is how I view my job. Yeah, I think that that third year definitely helped bring it into focus. There are very few people that I know, at least, who during the university years know what they want to do, figure out what they want to do, and just pursue that goal with razor-like <laughs> determination and focus <laughs> until they achieve it. You have done that. So I'm curious if you have any, any other advice besides what you've already shared. If you have any other advice for people who, whether or not they want to be journalists or something totally different, obviously journalism is your field of expertise, but what were the things that helped bring you the success that you've had that you could give to younger people maybe who are listening who have a goal of what they want to do in their career and want to make sure that they don't lose too much time or get sidetracked or, or what have you I think for young people there's probably quite a lot of noise and expectation about decide decide what subject you're going to do next year decide what subjects you're going to do the year after that decide where you want to go to university or college as it would be in the U.S. decide all this stuff and you kind of at some point need to take a little bit of quiet time away and just look look within sounds very kind of, <laughs> sounds a little bit pretentious but I think you have to really think about why it is that you want to do the thing that you think you want to do and try and really identify what your motivation is mm. what is it that you are hoping to achieve through doing that job what is it that's going to make you get up in the morning and do that job once you've kind of identified that and locked onto that, that's something that you can return to, you know, when you feel like giving up on pursuing that job, when you feel like it's not going to work out, or when you go for job interviews, because you'd be amazed, you know, sometimes when you ask somebody, well, why do you want to be a journalist, that they're not really quite sure. It's not that they don't know why, but they just haven't got to the point of being able to convincingly articulate it to somebody else. And I think that that's a really powerful thing to be able to do. Yeah. You just have to think about roots to get to the thing that you want to do. You're right that I I did have a, an objective in mind that I set out to achieve, but equally there were jobs that I took that were not moving me closer to that specific goal, but I could see the value of them, that they would challenge me in a different way, you know, that they would scare me a little bit and doing so force me to get better at something or to learn a new skill. I love that idea. I love the idea of something that scares you is what is going to make you better. Yeah, I think if you don't, if you, when you take on a new job, if there's not a little bit of you that thinks, oh dear God, <laughs> what if I can't actually do this? Then maybe you haven't, I mean, I don't want to say you haven't pushed yourself enough, but for me that's a sensation that I recognise because I think that that's an indication that you're pushing yourself to progress. How do you push through the fear of not knowing how to do it? Well, I mean, okay, yes, sure, you can just say to yourself, you wouldn't have got this far if you didn't deserve it. You can give yourself a good pep talk, but I think really, I mean, you just need to push through the pain barrier really sometimes. Maybe it's just practice too. I think so. I mean, think, you know, once you recognize the feeling then you can name the feeling and then it isn't as scary the second time. You can identify like, oh yeah, that's that, that sort of slightly sick feeling in the pit of my stomach. <laughs> I know this guy. Oh, I know it too. <laughs> I've met this guy before and it was okay, you know, because that time, I, I think that that's, oh, I don't know, I'm not answering this very articulately, no, but I think that you, 
I think that you just need to recognise that anxiety, but not let it paralyse you. You know, going back to what you asked me before about how do you achieve something? I mean, I certainly wouldn't, you know, nominate myself as some kind of, like, instructor in these matters. But what I know has worked for me is just, you know, keep your eyes on the prize, as it were. Like, keep your focus on the thing that you want to achieve. But understand that sometimes you can't go straight through. Sometimes you have to go around. Sometimes you have to look at your options and think well okay I'm not getting the chance to do this job that I might have wanted I mean there's lots of jobs that I applied for that I missed out on but you you can't ever say well I guess I, I'm not going to be able to do that or I guess that isn't going to happen for me you have to think right well what's the thing that I can do instead when you feel like ground down if you feel like oh this is like this job is not pushing me anymore I'm not learning anything anymore I need to push on to the next thing then it's hard like it's not easy but I think you have to say okay is there something else I could do that would challenge me is there some other kind of thing that I could do I mean in the past I've applied for side projects as it were that I got involved in that gave me something else to work on some other routes to direct my energy into and through doing that I had you know I met other people and I had other conversations and I had different thoughts and I met new people and had different ideas and through doing those things then you get on to the next and so it, sometimes those routes to the thing you're trying to achieve come in unexpected ways. It's brilliant and so true in all walks of life. Hi there, it's Tiffany. And I'm Katie. We are breaking into the show really quick so I can ask Katie a question. Yes. So since you've worked for public radio for almost two decades, I mean, you're a trained radio professional. Yeah. yeah. What is it like for you, specifically for you, to listen to podcasts? I mean, podcasting is kind of like the new blogging. Everyone's doing it. Everyone and their uncle, people who probably have no experience. Oh, yeah. Everybody wants to have a podcast right now. <laughs> Everybody wants to have a podcast. What do you make of it? Well, in a way, I really love it because I'm a huge fan of audio as a medium for art. I have loved radio since I was a little, a little, little, little person. So I'm very glad that people are so interested in it. That said, I audition new podcasts every single week. Really? Looking for new things to listen to. And I hear a lot of shows that are making mistakes that could be avoided if the hosts or the producers of those shows knew a little bit more about radio and weren't just trying to dive in and get going at it. If they knew a little bit more about what makes radio work and what makes it not work, that sort of thing. Hmm. And now people can get that advice directly from you. That's right. I know. So podcast consulting with Katie. This is just one of many thank you gifts that you'll find at our new Patreon page. So you can get help with your podcast dreams and support the show that you love at the same time. Yes. Visit patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast. Pledge to financially support this show. And you can pick up some podcasting help or some other great prizes if you prefer. Patreon, if you've never heard of it before, is a website that makes it easy for you to support the independent art that you love, like this show. Yes, we, we humbly consider ourselves artists and we work really hard to make this show and we hope that it inspires you and that it entertains you. And if it does, we ask you to help support it. Yes, you know that art doesn't occur in a vacuum. It needs people who are patrons of those arts to keep them going. We can't do it without you. Please visit patreon.com slash the bittersweet life podcast right now and help us keep this show going. That's spelled if you're a terrible speller like me, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, 
patreon.com slash thebittersweetlife. And we'll put a link in the show notes too. Thank you so much. And now back to the show. You live and work in Brussels, Belgium. I do. It hasn't been that long. How long have you been there? About a year and a half, more or less. Okay, year and a half. Is this your first expat experience since living in Rome in what year was that? 2006, I think we said? Yeah, yeah, it is. When you told me, when you emailed me and told me you were moving to Brussels, my first thought was it's easier for her to move abroad to become an expat because she knows she did it already once that's a roundabout I should have just asked you directly do you feel (laughs) that it's it was easier for you to become an expat again to move abroad because you knew you'd done it and you knew you could do it yeah I think so I hadn't like used those muscles for a little while because I'd been back in the UK at home for a good few years but I think it's natural to have a degree of apprehension even if you love traveling about picking up and going I'd never been to Brussels at all, like not even for a long weekend before the first day that I turned up for work. Hmm. I had no idea really. I didn't know the city. I didn't really know. I didn't know the country. I do speak French and English is very widely spoken in Brussels. But so I had the comfort of knowing I could communicate with people. But other than that, I didn't really know the country. But I do think you think, well, okay, how bad can it really be? I've gone before. I've lived in, in a new country before. So I'm sure I can do it again this time. I mean, I do think also it's kind of like what I was saying before is being able to identify the feeling of homesickness, of worry, of anxiety and not be too put off by it is quite a good thing as well. Mm -hmm. I mean, I often say to people when they get ready for their year abroad as a student, you know, thinking about the experience I had when I lived here with you, is people always say, oh my God, you're abroad. Oh my God, you're going to live in Rome for a year. Oh my God, you're going to live in Paris for a year. How wonderful. It's going to be the best year of your life. Mm -hmm. You're going to have an amazing time. And yeah, like you will have amazing times, but there'll also be points when you're like a 19 year old kid who doesn't have any friends really (laughs) in a new city where you don't know anyone. You can't all have Tiffany for a roommate. I'm so sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, (laughs) made better by having a lovely roommate. But, you know, there's still times when you think, wow, like maybe I'm not having the best year of my life today. Maybe Mm. I kind of miss my family a bit. Maybe I miss my friends a bit. And you sort of have to... It sounds a bit silly, but you, you sort of have to give yourself permission to sometimes have days where you don't feel like you're living in a movie mm-hmm. and it's all wonderful. You know, you think, OK, well, I'm going to move to a new country and there'll be challenges, but I've done it before. I'll do it again. And if it's really that bad, then I'll get on a plane mm-hmm. and I'll go home. True. That's always there's always that option. You always wanted to move abroad. How, where did that come about? Did that come about when you were a kid or more recently? I think that the groundwork for that was laid quite early in my life because as I mentioned uh, my godparents lived in Tenerife in the Canary Islands and so I spent every summer there of my childhood and my dad was a a school teacher so we got really long holidays like six weeks or seven weeks sometimes in the summer and we'd just decamp and go to Tenerife for the whole time in the north of the island I should say so the whole island is beautiful most people go on holiday to the south Mm -hmm. the north is where my I call them family we're not blood relations but my family are from and so spending six weeks of your year every year as a child somewhere it kind of accustoms you to a different way of life a different pace of life different way of doing things in a way that I think is quite formative and then as I got older I was really lucky because I, I got to travel a lot in the holidays with my parents and with my grandparents 
Yeah, I feel like you've been everywhere, like every continent. <laughs> you've been to like 700 there's, countries. There's loads and loads of places that I haven't been, but I mean, North Africa, Southeast Asia, Central America, the US. Do you think that this very wide travel that you did as a child, going to lots of different places for short periods of time, had more of an effect on you? Or do you think that going to this one little spot on this one island for long periods of time, getting more in the soil and getting mm. more um, used to that place. Which one of those two experiences do you think give you more of the desire to, to live abroad? Gosh, that's such an interesting question. I've never thought about that before. I think probably going one place for a longer period of time because in some way you feel like you're gaining the tools to assimilate. I spent a month in France when I was 16. I feel like getting up every day, having a routine, doing the same things, mm. eating breakfast in this French kitchen and going onto the French train station and taking the train into Paris, doing these things over and over again made me feel like, oh, life is possible in a different place. It's not only in my little town where I can have a real life. I can have a real life in France or anywhere. Whereas when you're traveling, you're just being a tourist. You're just going to hotel in the airport and the, the museum. I think there's a skill to that as well. I think there's a skill to going to lots of different places that are very unfamiliar. But I think perhaps getting used to the day-to-day -day life of a different mode of life makes you overall more adaptable you would go out with people and you'd like go to the supermarket and you'd go to somebody's birthday party and you'd go to the house of somebody's friend and you'd be part of things in a way that you wouldn't be if you were visiting for two weeks. And so that I think does teach you the adaptability to kind of slip into a different rhythm of life. What are some of the differences you've found in your lifestyle from being a student expat in Rome and being a working expat in Belgium? Oh, wow. Okay, well, I mean, they're just... They're really different experiences. I mean, I, I don't even know how I would... I mean, first of all, Rome and Brussels are very different cities. Rome just has this kind of mysterious quality to it where you feel like, I mean, as you say often, which I agree with, you could be here for decades and still not know all of it. I mean, I had the impression when I left here that I knew Rome really well. And now when I come back, I think, oh, I don't think I've ever walked down that street. I don't think I've ever been down there. And it seems weird to me that I haven't, because in my mind, I know the city really well. But evidently, there's <laughs> huge swathes of it that I've never been to before. I was walking the other day from the Trevi Fountain to the Piazza di Spagna, and I walked past a payphone. You know, you don't see that many payphones anymore now in the age of multiple phones and smartphones and stuff. And um, I remember really vividly calling from that payphone. No way. I've got to be honest, I don't know that it was definitely your advert, but I definitely remember calling people from that payphone because I, I'd come with my dad for a few days to find an apartment before I actually came to Rome to stay, which just illustrates how wildly different just more than a decade has made the experience. I mean, now I'd have been able to be on Facebook groups, be on websites, looking at listings, contacting people, emailing people, Skyping people before I even got here. And at that time, I mean, I came with my dad and we were like looking at adverts written in Porta Portese or something mm -hmm. like that. 
Yeah, things have changed so much in 13 years. It's incredible. And trying to call people on Ferragosto, which was mistake number one of my Italian cultural assimilation, <laughs> like trying to rent an apartment Is it on Ferragosto the... weekend. Yeah, it's like the one one day of the year in Italy. Well, maybe not just the only one, but certainly one of the days in Italy where nobody will be answering your calls because yes, they will all be at the beach. And I was not because the guy that I was dating at the time, you remember Mirko? Yeah, yeah. He had had a an accident and he had broken his femur and he was either in the hospital or he was home from the hospital but he was convalescing and I didn't go to the beach once all summer I was such a good girlfriend and that's probably why you were able to get in touch with me and come see the apartment I remember I totally remember your dad coming and meeting me both I remember we got on what we thought was the right bus but evidently was the right bus but we got off way too late and ended up all the way up the Janicolo (laughs) (laughs) had no idea where we were whatsoever because again we didn't have smartphones in our pockets with data roaming or data plan so we couldn't just google map or other maps are available to (laughs) to our address no sponsor placements please um Um, which is just kind of wild actually we just got lost and was like oh well i guess we'll turn up half an hour late that's probably what happened that happened back then what do you notice that's different about rome and maybe even more specifically if you want to go into it about trastevere because that's where we are right now and that's where you're staying i feel like trastevere has gotten so much dirtier not having been here do you feel that same impression or another one i think there's a lot more graffiti on the walls than there used to be in trastevere i feel like the sort of noisy this is terrible the sort of noisy kind of brash foreign student population I'm sorry guys (laughs) feel like it's a little bit more obvious but then I don't know whether that's just my rose tinted glasses looking back and thinking oh you know it used to be so much better than this so it's just so much more authentic than this I mean I saw the band when their first album came out way back in the day where all these Johnny come lately's I don't know whether that's part of it. I hope that I'm self-aware enough to realise that might be it. And also that I was one of those students, but I don't think I I was quite as loud and screaming at three in the morning outside somebody's window. I don't think you were doing any of that. No, but I do think that Trastevere has become more of a tourist attraction than it was, say, 14, 15 years ago. I think people knew about Trastevere, but not as many is known now. I think now it's like a major place that people, that tourists go, whereas before it was sort of only the people who were really in the know. Yeah, I mean, that kind of thing is quite sad, I suppose, because in most cities, like, there's this desire for authenticity, I think, when people travel. The problem is when everybody wants authenticity and everybody seeks authenticity and then everybody starts going there for the authenticity, then the authenticity is inevitably going to diminish. That's brilliant. It's so true. So, like, what do we do? I mean, it would be really hypocritical of me to say, oh, well, you shouldn't come and stay in Trastevere, you Mm -hmm. know, because, I mean, I stayed here. I was a foreigner. And I'm here now as a tourist staying in an apartment in Trastevere because it's a great location. It's still beautiful. But I think that there could be... It's that thing about assimilation, isn't it? Like, I think that the more frequented by tourists and people on exchange programmes, like the sort of thing I did, the more popular it becomes, the more that authenticity is diluted. Maybe the less people feel they need to assimilate perfectly all right to just speak in English loudly under somebody's balcony at three in the morning 
it's actually not okay, really. <laughs> but if nobody's insisting upon those standards because there's not somebody's nonna living up there anymore saying, keep the noise down, I'm trying to sleep, then maybe there isn't, you know, where does it just becomes a, a an ungoverned space. <laughs> it's a very negative way of looking at it, I suppose. I wonder if people truly want authenticity or if they want character. Trastevere is not authentic. Maybe it used to be, but Trastevere has a lot of character. It has a lot of charm. It is what we want Italy to look like. If you want authenticity, you can go out into the suburbs, into the where most people live. Yeah, I mean that's true. That's but true. it's not picturesque. No. So is it the picturesqueness that people want, or is it the true authenticity? I don't know that authenticity is what people really, really want. No, I think that's true. Actually, I mean most people in Rome don't live in the historic centre. How much would it cost to buy an apartment in the historic centre of Rome? I'm not even sure how easy it is to buy because I imagine those properties stay in families. So yeah, like lots of cities, people don't normally live in the most touristy bit of it. And so there's a reason why, I guess, if you're thinking about being an expat, you're probably not dreaming of moving to like a really authentic <laughs> district inhabited by working people in like an industrial city in northern Italy. <laughs> you're probably not dreaming of where an average person lives in Turin. That's not what you're thinking about when you think about moving to Italy. No, you're thinking of the checkered tablecloths on the street corner with the lights hanging over. Yeah, I think there's probably a happy medium that you can find. That's what we're searching for. Katie and I are always talking about this. Where do you find, I mean, one of our very first episodes, we talk how important is beauty to your daily life? Like, what will you give up to have the characteristic, charming atmosphere that maybe drew you in the first place to become an expat? And I don't know that there's an answer. I mean, beauty, unfortunately, also has a price. And actually, that's probably what's the determining factor for a lot of people, because you can't afford to live in the most beautiful bit of the city necessarily isn't that a shame Does, is it shouldn't all places be beautiful beauty in my opinion should be one of those basic rights like schooling and healthcare that everyone should get to have beauty in their life well i mean okay on a philosophical level obviously <laughs> there is beauty to be found everywhere in daily experience but you know cultural monuments beautiful buildings that stuff is harder to come by. And certainly in Rome, there's just such a huge amount of it that even if you're not in the historic centre, just looking at the colour of the buildings, for example, mm-hmm. they're not grey, there's still colour. Mm-hmm. That's so easy. Like, why can't every city be colourful? Paint is paint, right? How, how can uh, like yellow cost more than grey? No, I mean, it doesn't, but I guess it's just... I think if you started painting your house terracotta, where I'm from <laughs> in Glasgow, people would be like... <laughs> think they've just gotten a bit of a high opinion of themselves <laughs> not authentic don't think that would go down well <laughs> beauty there's a specific version of it everywhere i mean there's just because it doesn't look like here there's yeah no, absolutely no i totally agree <laughs> i was just going off on a but tangent you have to take care of it i mean you do have to take care of it i know a lot of people that i know here think that rome's gotten a lot dirtier oh it has i think so i noticed the um the graffiti a lot more I mean even that there's a way to see it as beautiful of course now I see like lots of Instagrammers like posing in front of the graffiti yeah <laughs> but I mean cities remake themselves right especially I mean, Rome actually the thing that you were talking about recently about Notre Dame about how buildings evolve through time through the centuries mm-hmm. was exactly how I felt about that on a personal level I mean yes like a hugely destructive event really sad 
but the nature of these buildings, these cultural monuments that accompany us as people through history, by nature they evolve and they go through different phases and they change and so they don't always survive exactly as they were, otherwise they wouldn't survive. What will the most beautiful bit of Rome look like in 100 years? I mean, will the graffiti that's all faded be considered one of the most beautiful aspects of it? What will we valorise then? That's so fascinating. What are the chances that we're going to have you moving back to Rome? Oh, goodness. Well, I don't know, actually. I mean, I think if there's one thing that I've learned, and if I'm to follow my own advice, it's that you shouldn't be so dead set on exactly what you're going to do in your master plan that you aren't open to detours. So I don't know. I mean, I certainly my love of the city is completely undiminished. And even though... I haven't lived here for a really long time now. I still feel like it wasn't that long ago and it still feels like a home that I chose for myself at one time. I do think that Rome forces you to change in some ways. You know, you have to be at peace with the fact that things might not happen exactly how you plan. You know, the bus might not turn up. You know, there might be a really big strike in the course of a lifetime or in the course of the life of a city as old as Rome. These things you just have to go with the flow with. I took a lot of learning from my time here and it'd be nice to come back. But I don't know, honestly, there's lots of places I could end up. Would you be open to moving to very far-flung places, Africa, Asia, places like that? Yeah, I think I would in the right circumstances. I mean, I, you know, as a journalist, you want to tell stories and you want to be there when important things happen. Give everybody the tools to understand or the information to understand what's happening and why it matters. If there's an important story to be told, then I would never rule out going anywhere. But obviously, the further afield you go, the harder it is to jump back on a plane and go back home and see your parents, for example. If you have kids, then you have to think a bit about where are they going to go to school? How often are they going to see their grandparents? Like Once you start thinking about this stuff, there's a whole world of questions that open up. I know, now I'm all obstru- upset and stressed out. Thanks a lot. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, I could see myself going further afield, but Europe, everything's pretty manageable here. Yeah, it must be nice to be from Europe, to be from the UK. And I think about this a lot with British expat friends of mine. I'm like, oh, it's so easy for you to go home and see your parents. It's so hard for me to go all the way back to the West Coast of the States. But yeah, it is hard when you're not there for family yeah. stuff. Thank you so much for letting me interview you, Natalie. I've been wanting to do it for years now. <laughs> you're welcome. I hope I said something worthwhile listening to. I think we can say <laughs> that she has. Thank you so much for listening. This has been The Bittersweet Life. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net.